0: back to The Rated Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, The Rated Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and in today's broadcast, we're speaking with Michael Frazes, the Managing Director and Portfolio Manager of Frazes Capital Partners. Keen listeners will remember Michael from last year. We wanted to have him back on to see how the fund and his venture Capital Fund, which operates in global growth, has been performing over the past year. Michael also unpacks what he's looking at in the tech and biotech space, uh, things that he's purchased and sold, as well as he discusses his new AI-backed risk management tool he has built from scratch to help lock in future profits from a timing perspective. Uh, if you listen through the podcast, he says exactly what the URL is or the website and we also take it for a test drive across some interesting companies. So I enjoyed this conversation. I always find these conversations so interesting because there's so much happening out there in the AI space, the biotech space, names that you've never heard of that these guys look at. It's so interesting. So if you listen all the way through to the end of the podcast, I recommend you do so so you can hear the disclaimer and please keep your feedback coming and you can reach me at mgatty at ywm.com.au. So with that being said, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Michael Frazis, welcome back to The Rate of Change with your wealth Management.
1: Hi, Murdoch. Thanks so much for having me back on.
0: Yeah, what, well, it's been about 12 months? Something like that. How the year has flown. I know. Um, why don't we kick things off? Because there's a lot of people that have definitely uh, heard of you, heard the podcast before, but for our new listeners or new to the fund, why don't you give everyone a little bit about uh, who is Michael Frazis and uh, what the fund does?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, we have a, Global listed equity fund that invests in technology and the life sciences, um, focusing mostly on small and mid cap companies with you know explosive growth, true customer love, um, and really focusing on those companies you know growing exceptionally fast, so fifty to one hundred percent plus. Uh, we also run a venture fund, um, which focuses in on similar areas, so life sciences and technology, uh, mostly in Australia. And so they're the two funds we operate.
0: So um, for everyone, just to get everything off and running. Um, How has the, just looking back the past 12 months, how's the performance been? And uh, you know, how was everything in the latest update?
1: Uh, I think in the latest update, we're up 40% for the calendar year to date. there has been a small pullback since, which has kind of been across the board. I think the market has just been marching ahead, you know, pretty much since March. Uh, I think as we went into this year, everyone was expecting something very different. You know, there was a, a really bad 2022 for most asset classes, certainly ourselves included. Um, with our focus on high-growth stocks and and healthcare. Um, but then really like the opposite of what everyone expected happened. We didn't go into recession, spending held up, employment held up around the world. Uh, and we also had in the technology space, which was really on its knees a year ago, this entire new platform, for these large language models, which have just triggered this immense round of investment. Um, and not just investment, you know, genuine revenues coming from these new companies or these new divisions Um, and new companies and so i think that's really been the story of the last 12 months it has caused this huge diversion i mean there's always a case in indices there's always a handful of companies driving returns um that's not something that's unusual to this particular time but it seems particularly accentuated right now um, because most small and mid-cap growth companies um you know whether you measure by cloud computing etfs or biotech indices most of them are still kind of um very depressed and very down from their highs two years ago so it's really been in our space a tale of two markets you know there's been a handful of companies that have been on the right side of that ai shift um, and you know the recipients of those billions of dollars and also the beneficiaries of you now two years almost of, of cost cuts and then you've got the small and medium-sized companies which more often than not have been on the receiving end of those cost cuts and haven't done so well um, and are not one of the handful of companies that you know, perfect position for this AI boom. Um, so that's kind of how we're seeing things at the moment.
0: Would you say it's like a two-speed economy? It's like you're you're in AI and the manufacturing side or you're just not, and then essentially they're underperforming. Or do you think essentially this uh, AI, just like a rising tide, you know has lifted all boats?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you think about it, there's been there's still kind of a freeze on VC investments. There've been very, very few. Companies listed. Um, There's been a handful which we can talk about, including some that are relevant to us. Um, But you know, there's like this capital freeze, capital drought for this huge part of the market. And at the same time, there couldn't be more capital thrown at this new AI opportunity. So there really is that two-speed, and that's just within AI. You know, even before that took off, it was crystal clear that you know these big companies were going to do rounds of layoffs and cost cuts, and that was going to create um, or has created a down cycle in software and in all the small companies that service those those larger companies. So when, you know, Meta lays off 10,000 staff, that's 10,000, you know, office subscriptions, that's 10,000 times, you know, the 40 or 50 different software subscriptions every person will have. Um, and that created huge amounts of churn um, across the board. And so, which by the way, is, is not what people were expecting. So the whole promise of these software companies was, was that they weren't cyclical and it was recurring revenue. Um, and it's really been the case that that has not that has not turned out over the last kind of year. It's been a red down cycle in that part of the market, and that's still ongoing. Though it does seem to be steadying now, and you know we're many we're a year and a half into this, um, depending where you count from. Um, and it does seem that you know a lot of these companies have continued to grow and are start are continuing to invest um, and are continuing to add headcount now as well. So we could be there is a green light at the end of the tunnel finally.
0: Do you reckon? that the increased cost of rates going up and the cost of money has had a big impact on these companies or do you think there's been enough growth, you know, in that particular space to kind of offset that?
1: Uh, I, think, I think it was just a one-off big reset. You know, you've basically had since the, the 80s, you know, falling interest rates um, and now for the first time really since then you've had a huge increase in interest rates and that caused, you know, huge contraction in valuations. That's kind of happened. But, you know, there's been many times with high interest rates where the world's just been fine. You know, some of the biggest tech booms have happened in periods where interest rates were quite high. So there's nothing that says high interest rates means that gross stocks can't perform. Um, It does certainly affect the valuation of every asset class. But I'd say that's kind of happened. Um, And also it does seem like interest rates have shifted, have kind of peaked. Uh, And you're seeing for the first time a little bit of weakness in the data in the United States. Um, And you've certainly seen... Throughout, the last, throughout this year, inflation rolling over decisively around the world. So if interest rates have peaked, that means the value compression has peaked, which means that the return of a growth stock um, is going to be much closer to its actual um, organic rate of growth, uh, which is good news for, for holders of those assets.
0: So uh, I think what we're going to do is we'll, we'll definitely uh, jump into tech and the growth side there, and then we'll rotate into the life sciences. Um, but I love behavioural psychology. Right. And one thing I wouldn't mind asking you is uh with essentially what we've seen in the past couple of years, do you think there's been a shift in customer behavior? Is that due to the customers, their lives changing and I don't know, maybe the cost of whether well, they have less um, disposable income to spend? Or like as, as an example, right? Uh for a number of years, Silicon Valley was the beacon, you know, that's where you go. But then all of a sudden agendas changed, politics changed, people didn't want to live there. The actual Having that, uh, your business in Silicon Valley became way too freaking expensive, in the likes of you know Tesla, even Joe Rogan, people moved to Texas because you know in, in just using America as an example, the the tax structures they were, they were offering various things to these companies that actually made the cost of running their business and easier, simpler, more efficient. You know, we can make more money out of it. And then there's been a relocation. Are you, are you finding that there's been a shift in the consumer and the business behavior in various areas where you're looking at these companies or
1: I mean I think I think everything's changed I think everybody who's spending money whether you're in charge of a budget of a software company or family you've had to really adjust on what you're spending and how you're thinking about that you know both on the business side and the consumer side you know even even in Australia think of that huge lift in interest rates or so mortgage rates from 2% to 6% roughly um, that's a huge impact on everybody's budget. It's not like the world stopped or you know, people stopped buying things they need to buy, but everyone just had to make hard decisions and shifted their own spending. Um, and it certainly sharp, made everybody you know, sharpen their pencil and make sure they're really spending on the things that they absolutely need to spend. Uh, whereas there was a period where, you know, strange look back, you know, money was flying around. Like everybody seemed to be so cashed up. Everybody was looking for new investments. You know, everyone was looking for new things to spend money on. Um, it couldn't be more different to that now. Again, like from the smallest, you know, from a single person in Australia, like the largest company in, in the United States, you know, everybody's had to make that calculation. You know, money's just worth so much more now. and Everybody's being so much more careful. Uh, and it'll probably be like that. You know, it's, I imagine at the end of 2000, 2002, it was exactly the same. And then post the GFC. Um, and it kind of took 10 years for that to heal and for everybody to get really excited again. So, you know, as a base case, you're probably looking at, you know, five to 10 years of this kind of environment. But that's not to say that, you know, great companies aren't going to do extremely well.
0: So where globally do you see the growth coming from now?
1: Uh, look, I think there's two really exciting parts. There's obviously individual companies that are doing exceptionally well. Um, I think in the life sciences there's been this kind of revolutionary new class of drugs, uh, which is the GLP-1 agonists for weight loss, and soon these are injectables. They'll soon be oral forms, um, and the next generation is even stronger Um, And this is just going to change, have huge impacts on health statistics and also spending. You know, there hasn't been a drug that caused people to lose 15 to 25% of their weight uh, in the past. And if you think about the trends in healthcare, they've all been very clear and very um, one way. It's been aging population and growing obesity and growing health issues related to obesity, whether it's sleep apnea, um, heart disease, you know, huge, huge conditions um, demand for heart valves, demand for res meds, um, CPAP, Darth Vader masks. Uh, you know, there's it's it's all been one-sided for for many many years. Um, but now there's this new treatment, and it's not quite clear how that's going to play out. And, you know, my view is I think obviously people are still sadly going to have health problems. Um, and if you kind of lose a lot of weight, it's not like you're not going to pass away again, sadly, or have a heart attack at some point. It just might be much um, further m- when you're much older. So I don't think it's going to have a huge impact long-term, but there will be pockets. You know, For example, if you're doing weight loss, bariatric surgery, which typically gives 15 to 25% effective weight loss, um, why would you undertake that severe, painful surgery if you can just take a pill once a week? Um, so there will be parts of the the life sciences space that are completely turned on their heads, um, and there will be huge opportunities there as well. And one of the opportunities will be that, you know, in the last kind of month or so, all the, a lot of companies that even tangentially related to obesity-related conditions, which applies to a huge um, number of companies, they've all sold off significantly. There's definitely a lot of diamonds in the rough. You know, those growth med tech companies are probably as cheap as they've been, you know, in five years.
0: Yeah, we're talking off air. Like I was listening to like Sean Baker, people listening to Joe Rogan. There's a huge amount of, uh, you know, conversation out there. You know, you're on one side of the fence or the other. Don't want to offend anyone, but, you know, some people are in uh, the the medical camp. Some people are on the, you know, are only Green's. I personally, you know, went on the carnivore and dropped 15 kilos in five weeks because essentially just removing everything that created a, a, a an immune response in my body that was just angry with me, you know, you kind of removed all that and just pretty much lived off ribeye steaks. It was fantastic, right? But um, also there is definitely a need for, you know, having um, these types of products available for people to improve their lives because, and I think we're discussing off air as well, something crazy like if you're looking at, since, what, 45, the preservation of food, the amount of chemicals and everything in your food. Like I think I walked through Coles and Woolworths and you read what's on the back of these packets and I think there was only one thing which was um, prosciutto that only had salt and meat. Everything had some form of, of preservative in it. You kind of wonder what you're consuming.
1: Yeah, there was a great article that did the rounds, uh, I think it was about a year ago, that kind of like highlighted why are people getting fatter? Like why was everybody so skinny a hundred years ago? Why has that been one way? And it's not, it's actually a really hard question to answer because it's not obvious that it's come from increasing availability of calories, um, or anything like that. And in, in many cases, some people used to eat a lot more butter and eat a lot more you you know, fatty foods, things like that. Um, and there's a few kind of people have pointed their finger at a few different things, whether it's seed oils or it, it's kind of hard to say. One thing's for sure is these drugs kind of do work and, Actually, one of the things I find most interesting about them is they affect these receptors that they work on are in your stomach, but they're all over your body, including your brain. Um, and they found, firstly, with monkeys actually, um, who were getting drunk off rotten fruit, that when they gave them these these inject these drugs. Oh, they also repeated this experiment in the lab, so, so there was lucky monkeys that got that instead of you know the Ebola division. Um, you know, when they when they gave people these drugs, they they stopped drinking as much. Um, and anecdotally, that seems to be. Uh, a kind of universal effect of these things that you become less impulsive in other parts of your life, whether it's drinking, gambling, spending money, online shopping. uh, What
0: does it actually do? So it's, it's an injectable, right? So it's a. It's a we're discussing. It's injectable. It well. So it's not many pens around, which are out of demand, but there's quite a lot of.
1: Yeah, so it's was, it was almost like there's certain like rhythms in like that you see in life that just keep repeating. So obviously these things became popular and immediately like the exact same doctors and in, in like mom's groups you'd expect say, Oh no, this is unhealthy. We can't do this, do everything natural. Um, and then all, there was, there was, public, there was a publicized shortage, but of course, these are the biggest companies in the world. There is, there, there's plenty of supply available. Um, if you, you can, you can order these things online in Australia. And actually one of the big shortages was the, the pens that they're in, which need to be replaced every kind of, um, I think every month. Yeah, it's, it's injected once a week. It's painless. Injection what does it actually
0: do? Point. So once it goes in, what does it actually do to the body?
1: Uh, it hits these receptors, these GLP-1 receptors, and blocks them basically. And these, it basically, says that you're full, um, amongst other effects. Nobody really know, like, for example, it's it's been an open question why is surgery, you literally cut
0: part, what well, sounds cut, a lot less than gastric band or like remove
1: a gastric band. Like why why is that so effective? And it's not just because you feel fuller. It all seems to have an impact on these receptors as well. Um, and so it'll stop. It'll slow down the rate at which food leaves your stomach. It'll also make you feel fuller, um, and because probably some mix of those two things, it all seems to like reduce the spikes in insulin levels, um, which alone is enough to kind of have some pretty significant health benefits. And these were these were ultimately developed as diabetes drugs, not as weight loss drugs.
0: So do you find that it actually reduces your like cravings for like sugar and?
1: Uh, so I tried these. So I tried these. Uh, what was my experience with them? I would say it's bizarre because you do feel full. They're extremely powerful. Like this is – I can't imagine taking anything more powerful than what I did. I tried a Zempic. Um, I really couldn't imagine trying anything more powerful. Uh, so I, I started to think of what these new generation will do, but I'm sure they'll be extremely effective. Uh, but, yeah, you can't have more than a, two or three beers. You'll feel full. You, yeah, right. Like I think um, – Uh, Novo is being sued in the United States for not being clear enough that you can have like really bad stomach conditions. But I kind of find that hilarious because it means that people are just continuing to eat enormous amounts no matter how much it kind of hurts and how full they feel. Uh, But, yeah, it's kind of um, it really does have those effects and it's really powerful. Uh, So if anyone's on the fence, I think it's something that's interesting worth trying. And the the only reason I say that, and I'm I'm not a doctor, so speak to a doctor, but, you know, there has been 10-year studies of these drugs Um, They have been in the market for a long time. So, we don't know the 20, 30, 40 year effects, um, and there probably will be effects, but we do know in those long term studies, they did have overall strongly beneficial um, outcomes, including less heart attacks, or most notably, less heart attacks. So, that was some data that was released. uh, It was only a few weeks ago from Novo, from a very expensive, um, large study that showed they did have the effects that you would assume that people losing weights and having lower blood sugar spikes uh would have so it's pretty i think it's probably one of the biggest things that's happened in medicine in a while um yeah and interestingly eli Lilly, which is so you've got novo that does a zempic eli Lilly which does manjaro um and eli Lilly seems to be winning in the next generation in terms of oral drugs um and we always talk about glp1s there's two other receptors that their next generation hits they'll hit three receptors uh so it must be pretty powerful and that's the drug that's kind of showing the most weight loss. Uh, They also came out with an Alzheimer's treatment. That's two huge wins uh, for that company, and there's no doubt they'll probably become now one of the most – they already are, but will become even more so one of the most valuable companies in the world. Uh, There's definitely some interesting stuff going on in the healthcare space.
0: Yeah, and then, well, theoretically, um, you know, healthier organs, which actually brings me on to the next thing we're discussing, which is, is is it transmedics? Do you audit the uh, Yeah, so this is one you, of those that was very interesting. Do you want to run everything through Transmedics?
1: It's fascinating. So, this is a this is a company in the United States that's trying to create a national, I think market's probably the wrong word, but national distribution um for for donated organs. So, in the past, organs were kind of carried around in ice buckets effectively, um very unsophisticated, and they only lasted about 4 hours. So, if you think about the time it takes to get that to a patient that's needed and then conduct the surgery, There's a very small window and you can only re-transport them in very um, short distances. Uh, What they do is they actually keep liver, heart and lungs, they actually kind of connect them up, keep them warm, keep the hearts beating, keep blood flowing through these um, organs, effectively in these transportable boxes, Uh, and this dramatically extends the lifetime of them.
0: Sounds like a little uh, transfusion device, so the blood's continuously pumping, or something's pumping through that organ to make sure it's
1: yeah, I mean, if you oh, Google, Google Transmedic's like beating heart in box and you will see a heart beating, you can see it because it's all visible. Um, but they've got, I think last year they had something like 7% market share growing in triple digits. It's clearly superior to the existing. What's the market cap? Uh, it's about a $2 billion company. You know, but you can draw, if they, if they actually take significant market share, you can draw a line to $1 billion plus of revenue. Um, so
0: does a hospital purchase these or do they lease them out? What's the business model? Uh,
1: I think they make about 100000 per donation. So, yeah, of, cu- of course you have, to, you have to pay to have this. And they've also bought – recently they just bought a small airline.
0: They bought an airline.
1: So they're having trouble getting enough capacity on planes because, you know, there'll be an accident or somebody would have brain dead, death or heart death and they would need to transport it to where it needs to go um, immediately. And so there might not be um, – a way to get it to where it needs to go. So they were, they were kind of losing organs, so to speak. And actually this idea of losing organs is a a real issue because most organs that are available to be donated, aren't able to get anywhere in time. So they're going, and there's huge wait lists for, for all of these organs. Um, so by increasing the time that these things can stay alive, they're actually gonna be able to increase the total number of transplants that can be done and really make a dent, uh, in. You know, that major medical issue.
0: Is there any studies that have been done to say exactly like what the loss like the improvement of the loss rate is from this?
1: Uh yeah, they have they have done those studies. Uh I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but you know, it'd be over over seventy-five percent of some really? organs will like not be used. Um, that are available because they just can't get somewhere in time. Whereas with transmedics, that can go up to
0: you know. Well, the reason I, I find this is really them. interesting, there's a lot of people out there that have fairly rare blood types and such. And like to find that might be on a a list for no fault of their own, um, for a particular reason and they need that in order to survive. And you know, unfortunately there's a sad incident and a car accident, something equivalent and someone's generous enough to, you know, make those organs go to somewhere and they need them. But if it's one side of the country and that one person's been waiting for like ten years or something equivalent of five years for that particular surgery and doesn't get there because of missed a plane because it's in an ice box, like it literally yeah. saves lives. Well
1: that's the idea of them building this nationwide or US-wide, this um, network where they can just transport organs anywhere on their own planes that are reserved with reserved capacity for for what they're trying to do. So if you do have that, if, so an organ in one end of the country that you know becomes available that needs to be transported somewhere else, you can actually they can actually make that happen uh, in a way that just wasn't possible uh, when organs were kind of cooled. Um, I think it's they've also. You have to demonstrate they can improve the outcomes of the transplantations as well because there is some damage that goes on when you put things in organs in ice, uh, which doesn't happen with them. You know, this was a company, by the way, that dropped about 30-35% in the last
0: few weeks. So it's, it's fallen 35% in the past it's few it's probably weeks. one of
1: the top performers, you know, the last 12-24 months. Um, but yeah, I had a big pullback along with a lot of these Why pull
0: companies. Why did
1: back? Uh, you know, across everything we looked at, so we bought a, quite a fair bit in the last you know, a couple of weeks in the, of fast-growing medtech companies, including Transmedics. I've been watching it, really just bought it, you know, in the last couple of weeks. been watching it for the better part of a year. Um, I thought, I think there's two things. I think it was a general pullback in medtech, and medtech has just had a charmed, you know, existence really, and you know, it's been 10 years in one direction for a lot of these companies. I'm, I'm not just talking about small companies, you know, big companies like Medtronic, Abbott, um, companies that make heart valves, companies makes make these kinds of things. They all sold off significantly. And I think part of that was due to GLP ones. You know what investors are like? We like see, see a theme and everybody jumps on it, whether it's like long AI or like short anything that's related to- Yeah, weights. let's look at
0: the portfolio that's not really working and let's take that capital and repurpose it.
1: Yeah. And like there's it's these, these are big ideas that you can really like sink your teeth into that get people excited in one way or another. And I think there was an element of that with these GLP ones. You know, it got to the point where I think it was only a week ago or two weeks ago where the Wall Street Journal wrote in article about companies that were stocks that were falling because they were GLP-1 related, um, which included Intuitive Surgical, um, Inspire, which is sleep apnea. Um, so you certainly got to the point where it was that newspaper article level of investor awareness, which sometimes marks reversals.
0: What's the profit margin with GLP-1?
1: Uh, pretty exceptional. I've got my notes somewhere, but, you know, they're, it's, these things are on patents, they're extremely high.
0: Yeah, right. Anything else happening in the life sciences? It's yeah, I think
1: one thing that's kind of uh, we've been focused on is we had a company that we invested in our venture fund list on the ASX. And it was kind of obviously a bit nerve wracking because very few companies are listing. A handful that have have not performed well. Um, this is Curve Beam. It kind of opened down significantly as well. But fortunately, over a few days, it rallied back to its listing price. Uh, which was encouraging, you know, broadly, because now we know that for the right company, the IPO market is in fact open. You know that capital market is not dead, and there's actually been a number of cap raisings in life sciences on the ASX uh, in the last week or so. But I actually think this is one of the most exciting things uh, that we're. What does
0: Curvebeam do? Uh,
1: Curvebeam develops weight-bearing CT machines. So it's part of this trend. You know, if you step back a bit, of you know, if you go into an orthopedic. Um, surgeon and you need to get a scan, they'll generally send you off to somewhere else. Um, And also typically you'll be lying down for this scan. So if you have a problem that relates to the way when you're standing up or moving around on your feet, which is actually how most things manifest, um, you won't be able to see that lying down. Um, CurveBeam has created these uh, high-rise devices and they've sold 45 of them. They did 11.5 million revenue last year. Um, You can basically fit in orthopedics Office and they can just do the scan there and charge for it and revenue from it as well. Um, So it's kind of happened in other happened in dentistry where uh, actually the the CTO of Curvebeam, technological technological founder, developed things device that could scan 3D cone imaging it's called that could scan you in the dentist clinic and very quickly get a 3D image of of your face and your dental structure. Um, It was extremely effective, sold thousands of units, Uh, and if you go to dentist now, they'll probably image you in the clinic rather than send you off to some imaging center. Um, so they're basically trying to do the same thing in orthopedics. Uh, I mentioned they did 11.5 mil of sales. That was done with a handful of sales stuff. So one of the reasons it's exciting is they've done a deal with Stryker, which is the number one provider of orthopedic equipment. Um, and it's also most of their revenues. They've done a deal where Stryker will distribute their product um, and as part of that we will also offer extremely attractive financing terms for Curvebeam. So they'll go from a situation where you have a handful of people selling the device to, you know, over 500 reps globally pushing the device. If a handful of people um, could sell, you know, 45 of these things, how many could 500 people sell? Um, And that's kind of the interesting thing that, you know, we want to watch. So we're going to hold this as they roll out globally. Uh, And the other interesting aspect of it is they have some pretty interesting software modules that they can Tack on to um,
0: well, that's what I was going device. to ask. Are they just physically selling the devices as a one-ticket item? Was there, a, you know, a, an ongoing maintenance with a software pro- program off the back? Or are they leasing? What's their business
1: model? Yeah, so they sell them four hundred and ten thousand US. This is their flagship high-rise device. They have other devices, um, but this is where they get almost all their revenue at the moment. Uh, and the idea is, you know, they can actually scan people and charge. They will charge for the scan, and actually, the clinic will also charge for this the clinic will charge for the scan. A lot of that will go to curve beam, um, but the clinic itself will make more revenue from having this device. So the payback period could you know, could be as low as one and a half years on that 410000 or or longer if, you, if you're doing less scans, obviously. Um, so it's a pretty compelling pitch for the orthopedic surgeons um, to bring that revenue in-house. The other module they're developing or key module they're developing is, is bone mineral density testing. Mm. Um, so at the moment that largely goes undiagnosed, even though it would have an effect. On the way people are treated. So if a surgeon knows you have, you know, high fragility, um, they'll generally treat you differently. Maybe they'll put an extra plate in. Um, it'll certainly change the way they treat. But generally, those those that testing is not done. Um, so Curvebeam wants to basically add that as a module to their existing machines, uh, and also a new machine in development. So you basically put your hand in it, and it d- runs that test, um, and then we'll very quickly give you a readout and a score that will label enable people to diagnose you effectively for that. Bone mineral density is something that it's kind of got two issues. The first one is population-wide screening, so people know you know where they stand on this issue. And secondly, you know before surgery, you, know, you really want to get that data before surgery. Um, and again, the beauty is they'll be selling these machines and they'll be able to do these tests off these machines, um, generate extra revenue for themselves, increase the economics for the people they're selling it to, and you know, they've really just started rolling out. They've, they've literally sold only 45 of these machines.
0: When I hear of bone density scanners, I just recently watched the movie The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith and he was running around trying to sell those things and I think he said that they were twice the cost of an x-ray and, and everyone was happy with an x-ray. So what's changed? Is that, is that what it is, like bone density scanners?
1: I'm not sure what he was
0: referring to. Yeah, I know. Bone density scanners uh, have been, sure around a, yeah, know, the, density scan been around for a while.
1: Yeah, you can get these tests but you could also this, – this just makes it much easier and the orthopedic surgeon can do it in their clinic right. whilst they're testing for other things as well. Um,
0: so, is it a machine, or is it like a handheld device, or
1: uh, these are machines that would fit in kind of the corner of an office? How uh, to describe? Yeah, probably like an arm span wide, maybe a bit yeah, bigger right. than arm span. Um, and if you look at the, the high-rise machine, it's kind of like a CT machine that kind of whizzes around you. Um, it can be done in all kinds of different angles and orientations. Uh, but the key selling point or key point of differentiation is really that you're standing on it. So, if, if you're scanning an ankle. Um, you can see how the bones and tendons are aligned whilst you're actually standing on it, uh, which is very different to when you're lying down.
0: Yeah, right. That's interesting. Anything else in the life sciences you're seeing or investing in or anything that's not working out that you're looking to get out of? Or
1: uh, I mean, our biggest loser this year, or this, well, recently, has probably been one that's been kind of <laughs> turning a hole in us for a while. It's funny how it's some of your best-performing one, the stocks become your worst. Uh, but we held on to see limited, which proved to be Certainly, a short-term error um, because they just reported a result. Uh, we, we were kind of excited because they went from losing money to making money. and It was a billion-dollar profit turnaround. You know, adding roughly five hundred million cash to the balance sheet each quarter um, from losing that amount. But in the most and in the latest result, they grew gross profits by thirty-three percent, which is not that bad. They Had a huge cut in sales and marketing to generate any growth at all. When you're kind of cutting your sales and marketing by the extent that they did, it's quite an achievement. But they also made comments that they're going to return to growth, growth strategy. In other words, they're going to spend some more money, which in their instance, which is kind of an e-commerce model, generally means discounts and kind of offers uh, and basically money going or value going, more value going to consumers. So stock sold off significantly. But at the same time, it looks like they're going to re-enter enter India with their gaming division. So if you're not familiar with this company, they had, you know, e-commerce division, extremely profitable gaming. Um, gaming kind of suffered from both of those divisions. Suffered from that post-COVID hangover, which hit both gaming and e-commerce. And they also got banned from India, which is one of their biggest markets. Um, and all of a sudden, they almost immediately lost all their gaming profits um, from India. Now what, they're going what back. What was the
0: game so, again? Didn't they own uh the, Wasn't it PUBG they owned the rights to? And then Fortnite came out, and they figured let's uh, just marry course, the two and stick free fire. It. Yeah, and then let's just marry the two and stick it on a mobile device because what they worked out is there's more people in the world with mobile devices than essentially a standalone pc or an xbox so they hit that um second and third world market hard yeah i well, played that game once it was, it's actually not bad for a handheld device it's nowhere near fine. as good as fortnite but yeah well, I it's think pretty good the key opportunity that they saw
1: um was that they optimized it for low-end smartphones yeah
0: that's the one they optimized yeah, it yeah so
1: if you let's say you wanted to make the best game possible you're going to come up with something more like fortnite yeah. If you want to optimize it for lower-end smartphones, you're going to come up with something like Free Fire and then that was a huge success um, throughout the developing world, India, Africa, South America, Asia.
0: Yeah, and the good thing about that particular business model, it's not pay-to-win, it's pay-to-play, so it's cosmetic. So say the new Star Wars comes out or you know whatever's running at the time and you want to have that cosmetic character like cosplay essentially, kids would just purchase. or you know, By kids, I mean like I'm 30, 37, right? <laughs> We grew up with the uh, with with all the PlayStation's and the Game Boys. So essentially, our generation, when you're on a bus, like you're just gonna kind of want to do something. That's essentially the market, and it doesn't stop as long as the mechanics of the game is fine. If they continues to change, you know what's coming up. You know Father's Day, or I don't know, pull out a freaking Father's Day dress up code or something equivalent. Then yeah. off it goes. But so the the biggest issue with that company was that was their main source of revenue, right? And they got banned from. Yeah, well, that
1: prices. was their main source of profits. profits. So they did make some strategic errors. So at the top of the market, good thing they did, they raised a lot of money. The bad thing they did, they decided to go from, you know, Southeast Asia company, and C, to basically a global company. So they entered like Europe, um, e-commerce in India, big push into South America, and then it all kind of went wrong all at once. You know, banned from India, lost those profits, gaming turned down, e-commerce turned down, and they just committed to these immense... Um, you know, spending on investment. And that's, that was kind of the crunch that they got held up in. Um, and then basically they slashed um, sales and marketing expense, but I think it was, you know, well over 50%. Um,
0: what needs to happen for that company, do you think, to make a dramatic turnaround from the current way?
1: It's- well, it's going to be interesting because let's say they're annualizing, you know, $2 billion of profit at the moment. Um, what it's, it's not clear yet what they mean by return to growth and how much they're going to spend. Like, will they spend all of that in growing? And if so, the the big question is, are they going to grow? Or is it just going to create a war with, um, you know, Alibaba and other, you know, the people they compete with in Southeast Asia? Yeah, in South America, Mercado Libra. Um, I mean, to be honest, that's probably an area they should probably exit. But if the bull case is, it certainly helps that India's coming back. Um, gaming for the first time since, you know, this growth self began has returned to growth um, in the last few weeks. Uh, They are making a ton of money. They do have money they can invest and still be profitable. Uh, And they are number one in most of those countries in Southeast Asia um, that they operate in, in e-commerce. And, you know, these are young, growing populations uh, with increasingly high, but still relatively undeveloped in terms of you know, internet connection, mobile usage, uh, e-commerce penetration. And so there's still that long-term thematic where C is probably best positioned to capture that. And now they've, they're have they profitable and, you know, they're extremely well positioned to do that. So all the reasons that people did buy the stock originally are there. And I think the company is basically trading for where we bought it at.
0: Um, well, here's a fun question. If you didn't own it, would you buy it today?
1: I kind of wish I didn't own it until today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that whole story oh you know, God, went up. We, 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 we we've all like owned it. I've
0: owned it. PA as well, and I swear, what we bought it at cents or something, around all the way up to like four dollars.
1: Yeah, it was like it was high, well, we that? bought it at forty-three, and it went up to three hundred and sixty. Yeah, I think huge. And then so yeah, we went down to thirty-seven. So basically down ninety percent.
0: Yeah, but that run-up was massive. And then essentially, what ten cent got banned. And that was all that Hawaii stuff as well. And essentially it was just like, you know, we don't want to be associated with, the West doesn't be associated with China. And it just got hammered.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's a Singapore-based company. I think it's one of those, the challenges of the last couple of years is that company's grown, you know, eightfold whilst mm. we own it. And it's probably down. I think we bought it, our first shares were bought at 43. I think I read million.
0: an article years ago. It was the fastest growing company, not just, China like in the world at like for a particular year
1: yeah it was And if you told me they were going to then be generating the profits they're generating now like the actual profits forget the revenue um and the user growth you wouldn't have thought it would be down over those two years but it is um just makes me
0: think it's mainly political that essentially drove that so the reason I
1: think it's markets I think it's if I describe it it was just it was just everybody's favorite stock and it just had to like it got way too hyped and then it got unwound um, and a lot of us, myself included, that were like very committed, you know, we're going to be high conviction and we're going to, hold, we're going to take a five to 10 year view and hold them. Um, and then companies like C just kind of really punished that view. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, it's ahead of where you thought it, think it would be. Well, but let's, let's use is- that
0: lovely word hype and let's talk about what is the most hype thing in the market, which we kind of touched on before. And probably in my opinion, one of the only reasons the NASDAQ's up is this artificial intelligence. And I remember at the beginning of the year, I was turning to my mates, uh, you know, as advisors looking at where we're going to allocate for, you know, funds, etc. And I was like, this AI trade makes so much sense. But the question always is just like with any gold rush, you know, do you, are you going to make more money in the tools or, you know, hunting that beautiful gold shiny ore? Mm. So what do you you reckon now? It's had a huge run up. Um, I'm seeing a number of people saying that NVIDIA and Composata are worth potentially more or less than they should be. Do you think it's a a bubble forming or do you think this is only up and coming or do you think the play is predominantly, you know, in the manufacturing side on the chips like NVIDIA or do you think the play is actually in the language models like Microsoft? What's your opinion?
1: Um, look, I think there's a couple of things and that tools versus, you know, like the, the gold miners or the tool sellers or whatever the right analogy is. Um, it's kind of a split between the people who, the companies that people are spending money on and the people raising money and spending that money. And so to the extent there's a bubble, it's probably in the companies that are raising, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars and then spending it on chips. And then where you really want to be is the people who that money is being spent on. Um, and there's reasons for that. I mean, there's, it's very unlikely, I think, that there's going to be more than a few big winners here. And it's almost like instead of tools versus miners, it's probably more like Davids versus Goliath. And, you know, in tech, often it's been the Davids that have won. You know, you've had, think about like software. It was like these small, nimble software companies just making much more friendly consumer products, winning over against these big, steady, you know, Oracles and Microsofts and things like that. Often, sometimes, often the Davids actually win. Um, but in this case, it's crystal clear to me anyway, or my personal view it's an increasingly strong one is it's the Goliaths that are going to win. And the reason I think that happens is there's just, I think it's going to be, there's going to be three big winners. It's going to be Microsoft and open AI, and they're going to roll out, Microsoft will open, will roll out AI across all of its products. Um, you know, recommendations, uh, ways to improve your slides, ways to summarize meetings with teams. They're going to use open technology and increasingly others, but they're going to have a lock on that ecosystem. Um, they're going to charge their hundreds of millions of people, whatever it is, $30 a month. That's going to be an enormous revenue stream. They're going to invest that um, in pro- most likely NVIDIA. They'll foster a number two in AMD. Um, then you've got Google, which is kind of the sleeping giant, who actually has their own, who developed all this, you know, foundational science behind this. And it was ex-Google people that then went and founded, or were mostly behind OpenAI. Um, but Google is the only company that has like, in you know, the computing capacity to kind of compete with anybody at the moment in this space. They're developing their own chips called TPUs instead of GPUs. Um, instead of using NVIDIA, they're using Broadcom for these. Um, but there's a lot of people who use Gmail, Google Docs, you know, that kind of Google suite of products. And so Google's a clear winner there. Um, and I don't think any of the other large language models are going to penetrate either of those demands, whether it's business, um, which mostly uses Microsoft, or, or people or startups using you know, startups, you know, kind of forward-looking companies locked into Google's ecosystem. So I think they win there. And then the third player is like Meta, which is investing a huge amount um, and is open sourcing the whole thing. They're they're open sourcing all their models, which will the next generation will probably be better than ChatGPT or GPT four. Which means that there's like a free source backed by one of these hyperscaling, you know, internet giants. Um, And if there's a free source, then where does that leave everybody else? (laughs) If you're trying to develop a language model or even a tool to compete with Microsoft that improves productivity. Um, or even like, say, an image, are you going to compete with Adobe? You know, it's it's really hard. I really think that Goliaths are going to have a lock on this technology. Um, in terms of where you want to invest, the good news is that the risk reward in these companies is generally pretty exceptional. You know, they're particularly because they have relatively low risk given the cash what companies are you holding in
0: the portfolio that's exposed to this space?
1: Uh, we have a fair bit in the biggest ones we hold are ASML, AMD, and we did hold a lot of NVIDIA. They recently reduced that. Um, the reasons for AMD is, we think they're going to. F- we're confident that the big purchases of these chips are going to foster a number two. Um, ASML we own because they make the machines that kind of make the chips. They do the lithography, like the really, which is really advanced technology. There's nobody else that does it. Um, we thought really hard about Taiwan Semiconductor. So in terms of where these chips are being made, they might be designed by Nvidia, AMD, or in the case of Google's. G- TPUs or Meta's chips, they'll be designed by Broadcom. Um, but they're almost all going to be made by Taiwan Semiconductor. Now, we don't own it. The reason we don't own it is because over the last two years, we've been buffeted by headlines so many times. i just just not comfortable yet about how you actually weigh up that risk of, of China and Taiwan flaring up. Um, but if you had to pick another one, the next – The next um, biggest manufacturer is Samsung and Taiwan Semiconductor does, you know, four to five times as much. Well, I went
0: to a fund manager, I can't remember who it was, um, and he was discussing that essentially manufacturing in this space was his play. And he was referencing a couple of companies I've never even heard of in Korea that are essentially making these chips for this particular space. I can't remember the names of them.
1: The supply chain is pretty incredible. I mean, there's companies that like just do cleaning of various phases of fabrication. Or maybe they make the lenses or they make the wafers or, you know, there's an, and there's been kind of a period of consolidation, um, you know, over the last kind of probably even 20 years, where there's really often only one. So ASML, there's literally one person that makes this key machine, um, that you need to make these advanced chips, um, or, or, you know, often there'll only be two. And so these extremely profitable companies that are all going to be the benefit beneficiaries of this spend. Um, and it's going to be one of the biggest CapEx drives you know, in history. And I can completely understand why people do that, why people focus on those different companies. Funnily enough, it's probably one where even a semiconductor index is probably a good way to play for most people um, because you get a mix of all those companies. Uh, so you will capture the winners. Uh, and invariably now, given the performance, it's going to be heavily weighted towards companies like NVIDIA, uh, which ultimately is probably... Yeah, I've been doing this for so long, but still always make the mistake of focusing on the number two and not the number one. You know, every time, almost every time, you're almost better off with the number one. Look at something like NVIDIA. It's trading on a forward P of something like 29. Um, It's not expensive given the revenue growth that's going to come. And it's quite likely that the right call in semiconductors is the obvious call. You know, it will be the number ones. It's the ASML, Taiwan Semiconductor, NVIDIA. If you go down the supply chain, it's probably people that have monopolies on key components um, where the money will have to go and they will capture some of that value. Um, you know, it's a very cyclical, uh, industry as well. So a lot of the purchase orders, many of them are real and be continued. So the hyperscalers, the Tesla's buying Nvidia chips, Microsoft buying Nvidia chips, everyone buying these clusters, all this, that's going to continue. But you know, the startups that have raised a ton of money, which my view is unlikely going to have such a happy outcome, um, you know that looks like a hype cycle, which will probably end, and that demand will probably be much more short lived. Uh, so you could have easily be in a position, you know, in one one and a half years, where everybody is massively over of these chips. They come on the market, and then as happened a number of well, times. we've
0: seen this before.
1: We've, the crazy thing is we've seen this so many times in the last three years. We
0: well, see it across every single industry. You know, the good times, champagne pops, people doing deals at the top, and then essentially yeah. it just kind of dries up. It everything crashes. And there's a couple of fund managers we quite like as well that only their entire business model is they wait for essentially, they don't participate in the FOMO, they wait for essentially the entire thing to crash. And then the Mm. strongest member survives. The rest die. And as you said, they back the number one player in that space at ground zero and everyone hates Mm. it. And then they just wait patiently four or five years and the thing rips. Requires a lot of money and a lot of patience to play that strategy, but
1: yeah, I mean, if actually, you think that what, even
0: in – What do you reckon – what are the valuations currently? like? With, I haven't uh, had a look this morning, but what's the valuations for these AI and uh, computer chip companies? Are they to the point where they're overvalued currently? Are they in the 40s yet? Whenever I hear valuations start hitting in the 40s, I'm like, all right, boys, potentially time locking some profits now.
1: Like what's Taiwan Semiconductors trading at 9.5 times EBITDA? nvidia is a forward p of 29 it's rich but it's it's it's, it's, it's these kinds of thinking can be misleading it's one of those because they're cyclical so they'll always look great at the top and with amazing growth at the top and amazing forward ps um and often it's like when they're losing money uh that are the best times to own because it's just been you know this and that because that's when the industry is rationalizing and that's when there's much better years ahead um one thing we found is you know we obviously had one of the best track records and then had a horrific you know twenty twenty two. So something that I've been like spent basically all this year is like how could we have done so how could we have done better? You know how could we have captured most of those gains um but not had such a drawdown? Uh, and it really comes down to risk management and developing like really effective, simple risk models. And you know applying those kinds of things to semiconductors is extremely effective. You actually generally generate much better returns throughout the cycle with lower drawdowns, which is kind of rare and hard to find in finance. But the reason for that is they go through these enormous cycles, so you really want to be in them in the bull markets and out of them in the bear markets. If you tried that kind of strategy with, you know, I don't know, a bank or a utility, you would end up losing money.
0: Um, well, let's touch on that a bit more because we were discussing. I think you showed me last week. It's really quite cool. You've actually developed a tool to, um, you know, tighten up that process, right? You know get us up the mountain, and then get us down the other side alive, right? So do you want to walk everyone through that?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's not something I've really talked about much, but –
0: I'm not suggesting you have to make (laughs) it public or anything. I'm just saying – I actually
1: put it up on a website, chartchamp.ai. So I've been playing around with it. So if if people want to experiment with it, they can. But the idea is basically, you know, you want to – the kind of areas that we invest in generally have these extraordinary rallies. They might be like, one to five year periods where they are the best performing companies um, and they've got up three, four, five, 10 times. Um, but they're also the kind of sectors that drop 65 to 90%, you know, every now and then, um, which is quite, there's a number of these, you know, like Bitcoin has done it. Semiconductors do it all the time. Commodities are very similar. Um, high growth tech uh, displays these characteristics. Uh, so what you really want to do is you really want to try and minimize your losses and then make sure that you have something a, that gets you back in if you sell, um, and B, that can potentially keep you in if it is in fact one of those four-year runs where everything goes up five times, um, where you make real money. And if you just do it because you think things are expensive or you think things are cheap, um, that's kind of really hard to do and you're probably going to get it wrong.
0: Well, let's have a bit of fun with this. If you have it up there, why don't we look at a company and, like, and uh, say exactly you know, where it says you should be in, where it says you should be out.
1: Yeah, let me have a look. <laughs> So I'll put in one of these, why don't we do do C, which is close to my heart because it was such a big returner and then such a poor performer. So this kind of told you to buy in 2019 at 13. then told you to sell at 255. So So
0: after it hit the high, it'd come off a bit.
1: So it's well off the high. Yeah. But then obviously the market collapsed. Now, if if you ran this strategy of the life of the stock, um, you'd have made 48% with a 50% drawdown. The stock itself returned eighteen percent from IPO um, per annum with a ninety percent drawdown. So you cut the drawdown to fifty three, which is borderline manageable. Um, but you got a forty eight percent KGA and actually kept you out of the market for most of twenty twenty two, which is where that kind of benefit came. And you made ten times your money instead of you know two point seven times.
0: Does it suggest to enter in the past?
1: Uh actually, at all? it said sell recently, and we have actually. Running these models across most of the portfolio did, didn't obey at that time and then, you know, regretted it shortly after. We did it with, uh, there's another company that we've kind of been intrigued by, which is Farfetch, which went from, I think we bought it 17, it went up to 65 and then down. And that gave a sell signal on this and we exited, even though management was kind of coming out with some pretty bold statements and claims. Uh, and that has completely collapsed since. So it has yeah, right. kind of saved us at least once.
0: So how far had that stock fallen after you got it out of it?
1: Uh, I would say it would be down by more than fifty percent.
0: Yeah, right. So it's so, quite sizable. to get your definitely. Yeah. Well, that's the th- well, the reason why this is so interesting is, as you said, this this space is renowned for hot money, hot ideas. You know, and it's where all the excitement comes from. But you make money from getting out of it, right? <laughs> not just. As much as what, look to be honest, I'd just love to be just an investor. You buy these companies, leave them there for the grandkids, and off you go. But unfortunately, with the cyclical nature of some of these industries, it doesn't really behave that way. Even though the company might be around for thirty years.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I was I was looking back at like some of the videos and stuff we put out, you know, a few years ago, and the message was kind of like, look, there will be drawdowns every now and then. You know, there was the tech was two and a half years down, and then probably a similar amount of time up. But then the returns over like 10, 20 years were exceptional. Mm. Um, and that's fine. But I'd say, you know, it's, it's, it's much easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> Given the last uh, couple of years, you know, that two and a half years from 2000, 2002, uh, I can see why, I can really see why that whole generation was scarred. You, t- you meant, talked about changing behaviors earlier. Think about changing investors' behavior. Everybody who went through that just had a completely different perspective on things. Same with 2008, 2009. Um, you could go two ways. You could go too negative and then miss the extraordinary boom afterwards.
0: And I think. Which is what a lot of people have done as well. Like you're too gun shy to get back in at the, at the bottom, which is uh, generally the wrong move. Because we've seen it all the time with cycles. The thing is, the cy- every cycle is exactly the same. It's just the variables on the next way up will be completely different. And what's crazy is everyone's discussing, oh, this one's going to go next. But what a find. It's like nine times out of 10, it's some random. Uh, sector of the market that no one's even seen before then after it happens everyone's like oh yeah i told you that one was going to happen
1: well the other issue is and i think reason these price-based models can be so effective on risk is that the prices do move so much earlier than anything before anything actually really happens and it might be you know the market just got there's just less buyers and sellers all of a sudden it might also be that the insiders maybe they're not selling but they've stopped buying and they've stopped telling their mates to buy Um, because there's no there's trouble coming you know all these things kind of like feed into the price um look i think you know in terms of like how we've changed our approach we'll never go through a drawdown like that ever again you know we really want to make sure that we're out of the market um, when when we have to be Um, but that comes with making sure that you have a a clearly defined way of getting back in um and then you know the good thing is is you know all these tools i built those with ai there's no way i could have done this kind of coding exercise myself
0: that's the most interesting thing because i I was going to say before there's always you know they were talking about you know manufacturing or the tool itself but i was i've actually found personally even from what i do is door number three even all my clients which i speak to they're all in different areas so many people use um ai to essentially take a task that might take four eight hours down to one just efficiently improving their process so i think what doesn't get discussed enough is the, what's the actual impact of some of these models just to improve normal human beings day-to-day jobs and how's that improving the underbelly of efficiencies across not just one but every industry
1: yeah it's i incredible. find
0: that mind-blowing
1: and i think also when it comes back to that demand side like how real is it is it a bubble or not you know when when all these when everyone's using these ai there's like a supercomputer whizzing up basically mm. you know on the other side of the planet or potentially close to us um that computing demand is real and that's going to come There's a handful of beneficiaries of that. Uh, so I think in terms of like the beneficiaries of the trend, it's going to be the, the companies that really capture the revenue from those from that immense increase in computing. You know, honestly, computing was probably a pretty safe bet before this, um, that computing, the demand for computing was going to go up over time. Um, and in fact, semiconductors have generally been one of the best performing sectors, albeit also one of the most volatile, um, but now there's, there's like this extra demand that's going to come on because these things are so effective and, you know, you can actually see computers think like I'm on Google mm. BARD, which for many things, cause it uses live data is much better than chat GPT. Um, certainly if you're doing research, let's say you want to, what are talking about before GLP ones? Yeah. You just ask it, give us, give me the latest GLP one drugs by revenue, give me the top five papers in 20, 2023, 2022, 2021, were there any long-term studies list those papers? What were the key outcomes? Um, tabulate all this data you know Google Bud will do that for you now um, it's pretty in fact it's incredible and it'll save it all
0: Well, appears I'm about that. to switch from chat GPT to Google yeah. Bud and give that a go but
1: the key point is Google you watch Google Bard think like, this is Google imagine the compute power that Google has yeah. at its disposal I'll think about how fast and, to, and to, to make that more clear think about how fast Google can like index all of the world's knowledge you know you type in something it just happens almost instantly And now think of the fact where if I type the same thing that I typed into Google, where it literally went through basically, you know, crawled the world's information, type that into their, their large language model. And it takes them like 10, 20 seconds to think about it. Like that's a computer. That's the same speed, that same power computer probably is like thinking about that. Um, Which is why it's, which is why, you know, that why we have such conviction on that demand for computing power going forward.
0: Just, Blows my mind. Um, anything else that you've seen in reporting season that's performed well or something they missed that you thought?
1: Uh look, I think reporting season was pretty solid across the board in the United States. You know, the crazy thing is, these a lot of these companies have swung from being really cheap in 2016 to like literally as expensive as they've ever been in 2021 to as cheap as they've ever been, in some cases by a factor of 10. Um, you know, over the last year, but most of the companies we track and own every three months, they're you know ten to twenty percent bigger than they were, and that has kind of continued. Um, I think also you're now seeing pretty much every company in or most of the certainly the companies that we like, uh, you're seeing huge increases in profitability over the reporting season, and actually some of that has come from high interest rates. So sort of CrowdStrike and a couple of other companies, there's a lot of these companies have billions of dollars of cash that are now earning five six percent which can be hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, which for a marginal company is all of a sudden extremely meaningful. So it's interesting to see that benefits of those high interest rates also flow through to some of these companies. Um, yeah, I guess locally we're most excited about CurveBeam uh, and offshore we're really tracking closely the semiconductor industry and the impact of the GLP-1s, um, which I think is you know, also really exciting and interesting. Anything else? Uh, that's probably about it. <laughs> Uh, again. Talking about
0: well, favorite question i like to ask is um, what keeps you up at night and what gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh,
1: what keeps me up at night? I mean, I feel like we went through – I feel like in our sector, the bomb kind of went off last year. You know, that was kind of like the – that was like the forest fire that burnt through like 20 years of undergrowth, you know, that had been building since 2000, 2002. Um, Good question. I think the way we're structuring things now, we've designed a process so that we're not going to get caught in a drawdown the way we did in 2022. So do sleep a bit easier in that regard. Um, Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, personally, we've seen inflation fall and interest rates stay extremely high. But should that trend continue, interest rates will fall. The peak in valuations will be here. Fast-growing companies, and you know, we're typically investing in companies growing over fifty percent, their returns, as they did for the twenty years prior to 2022, will be at least as good as their organic growth rates of return, and that for us is a pathway out of this and you know being market leading performance again. Um, the downside of that would be if, let's say, for whatever reason, inflation continued to spike up and actually interest rates had to go up another two, three, four hundred basis points, that would certainly give us another round of of selling. So that's probably. You know, one of the worst things that could happen. So far, we're not seeing that though. We're actually seeing the opposite, seeing inflation fall and interest rates probably peaking. Um, is that helpful? Is that enough? And
0: we'll get the opposite. I feel like I've
1: done like two or three closing statements now.
0: <laughs> well, that's great. Um, well, Michael, really good to have you on again. And um, if anyone wants to learn more about Frazz's Capital Partners, where can they find you?
1: Uh it's go to Frascapital Find me on Twitter at Michael Frazis. Uh yeah.
0: Fantastic. All right, Michael, we'll have you back on in 12 months to see how things are going, and really good to see you again. Thanks, Madoff. Really appreciate you having me on. All right, have a good one. Bye. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation, and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.